We're going to look this week at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, uh, a passage we started looking at last week that we're going to finish this week. So we're going to look at the whole armor of God, part 2. So we'll read those verses in a minute, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. But here at the outset, let me just begin by, by giving you the main idea of the passage, which we, we, we set, set out last week, or we laid out last week, which is simply this. Christians must stand against Satan and the forces of evil by putting on the whole armor of God. So, so that was the big picture last week, that Christians must stand against Satan by putting on the whole armor of God. And so we looked at last week that point that, that Paul lays out, and this week we're going to look at the specifics in this passage of, of how we stand firm, how we put on this whole armor of God. We're going to look specifically at the pieces of armor that Paul lays out here. So we're going to look specifically at how Christians are called to stand firm against Satan and the forces of evil. So Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 10 through 20. Uh, so follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's, let's pray as we begin. Lord, we confess as we come to this passage, we confess that the reality of the situation that we're in is that we are overpowered in and of ourselves. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this, this armor that you have granted us, Lord, that you would encourage us and that you would embolden us to action, that we might stand firm against the evil one. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign over even Satan and all of his forces. And so I pray that you would encourage us to fight because you have already won the war for us. And so use these, these verses uh, to encourage us, your people, and help us to stand firm. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we work through this, we're, we're going to look at three sections. And so the, the first point that we're going to look at is just the background. Um, we're, we're just going to look at kind of where, where Paul is drawing this imagery from. So that's going to be the, the first part. Then second part, we'll look at the Christian's armor. So we'll look at the specific pieces that Paul lays out. So last week he said, stand firm. Well, this week we're going to look at what he means, how we stand firm as Christians against uh, Satan and his forces. And then third, we'll look at prayer and spiritual warfare because he, he stops the list, but then he mentions prayer. And so prayer is kind of part of the armor, but it's kind of not. It's kind of even more important than the armor. And so, so we'll look at prayer 
and how it relates to spiritual warfare, because it does, because Paul includes it right here, and we'll see that in verses 18 through 20. So let's begin by, by the background. Before we even look at the verses, let's, let's look at the background. So if you've, if you've heard this talk before, if you've read on this passage, it, it isn't uncommon for people to say that Paul is using the imagery, the weapons and armor that would have been common among the Roman soldiers in Ephesus at the time of his writing. So, so people say, well, Paul's just looking out. He's in prison. He's looking at his garden. He's saying, oh, there's a helmet. There's a shield. Uh, there's a breastplate. There's shoes. And so they're saying he's, he's getting his imagery from the Roman soldiers, the, the Roman army that would have been there. Now, there's certainly some overlap, right? There's some overlap in, in all armies and all armor, but it's probably not the Roman soldier that Paul's taking his cues from here in this section. Instead, Paul is almost certainly referencing well-known portions of the prophet Isaiah in his description of the Christian's armor. So, so Paul's not primarily looking at the Roman soldiers, but he's referencing passages in Isaiah, verses in Isaiah, that, that armor of God is, is mentioned now, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but I will mention as, as we go through each passage, I'll, I'll reference you back to the places in Isaiah that he's, he's pulling from, but all except for one piece of armor that, that comes in verses 14 through 17 are found almost in identical language from verses in Isaiah, which is why we can say he, this is what he's intentionally referring to, to places in the Old Testament where, where the people would have been familiar with. So throughout this paragraph, on spiritual warfare, Paul's sustained imagery is drawn from the prophecy of Isaiah, which describes the armor of God. And not only the armor of God himself, but also the armor of his Messiah. And so that's what Paul's referring to there in Isaiah. And so if you just want to jot this down for later, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59 are the two chapters, two places where this imagery is mainly found. But the point I want to make just here at the outset as we look at the background is in Paul's presentation, many of the traits and virtues that characterize the Messiah, the Lord himself, will now also characterize the Messiah's people as they carry on his mission and battle against the enemies. And so Paul's saying, the Messiah came with this armor on, and now you as the Messiah's people have the same armor that the Messiah was equipped with. And so the background, the understanding of Paul's imagery in light of the uh, passages in Isaiah help us understand the way that Paul would want this to be understood. Namely, Paul would want... The, the Ephesian Christians to understand that for the one who's united to Christ, for the Christian, the one whose identity is in Christ, the same armor, the same weapons that the Messiah himself was equipped with are the ones available to the Christian. In other words, the things that Christians are called to fight with are the same things that Jesus himself came to arm with, which would have been a huge encouragement in and of itself. This is no ragtag suit of Roman armor. It's like, oh, hey, you got armor like this. It's like, no, this is the armor that the Lord himself and his Messiah was clothed with in battle. It's a divinely provided and tested suit of armor. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to get that, especially in light of this context of this wartime mentality. He wants to encourage them, and he does so by, by referring them back to the Lord's armor. So let's look second at the Christian's armor right there in verses 14 through 17. So, so, so what, what are the specific pieces that he lays out? Look there first at verse 14. The beginning of verse 14, Paul says, Stand, therefore. Stand. Remember the, the call, as we, as we mentioned last week, it's to stand. The Christians aren't called to defeat the enemy. They're just to stand, to stand firm, to, to hold fast against the enemy. So stand, Paul says. 
And the first four weapons, the first four pieces of armor that he mentions after this stand are implied with the call to stand. And so, so it's as if, beginning in verse 14, Paul is saying, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Stand therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand therefore, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Stand therefore, having taken up the shield of faith. In other words, Paul's point is crystal clear. He wants them to stand. There are actions required for the Christian in this war. And so standing firm requires us to give attention to the things mentioned here and actually doing something. Right? So Paul's writing to his warriors, to the, to the Christians in, in Ephesus, wanting them to do something. This passage is an appeal for action. So we, we as, as hearers today, can't hear it and say, oh, well, that's nice. I'll just, I'll just put my Bible away and go on with my week. No, we're to heed these warnings, to stand therefore, because we, as we said last week, are in a war, in a battle, and we have a great foe. And so as we work through each of these, you're going to notice that the focus is on the virtue or, or the characteristic of God that, that determines the human action. So, so the focus, you'll notice, is not going to be on the actual piece of armor. So, so I'm, not going to, I'm not going to focus on, well, look, the, the helmet. And here's why the helmet refers to salvation. Here's why this or the, the focus isn't on the piece of armor. In other words, one, one commentator said this. I don't disagree. The meaning would not be different if Paul had simply written put on truth, put on righteousness, put on readiness, put on faith, and take hold of salvation in the gospel. I think that his point is on, on these characteristics, these virtues, and he, he's not wanting us to get too involved in, in the specifics of the armor. So I'm not going to look too deeply into the connection between the virtue and the specific part of armor. I don't think that the specific pieces are the point. The point is that we're in battle, and we're, we've been given things necessary to fight. We're able to stand for, firm, and we do so by taking action by putting on the virtues that Paul lists. So let's look first there, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So the first thing that Paul mentions is this belt of truth. If you have the NIV, it says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Or if you have the NASB, having girded your loins with truth. I like that language, girded your loins. Right, so this imagery of belt, it's not just this belt that you put your sword in that just holds stuff. This belt is an image of you're ready. You, you, it, it, it's, it's showing that you're prepared. Like you, so you don't have to pull up your, your tunic when you're running. You have a belt that, that, that enables you to move and be ready. You're prepared for battle. So this belt right, is, is what we're to put ourselves on. But the action we're to take is to put on the belt of truth. So, so his point is truth which is Isaiah eleven five is the exact thing that's mentioned of, of the Lord himself coming with righteousness and truth or faithfulness around his waist. So Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Well, what does he mean? Right? What, what does he mean by calling us to put on the belt of truth in order to stand firm? What, what, does, he, what does he want us to take from that? Well, in light of this, the whole context of Ephesians, Paul's almost certainly referencing the truth as it relates to the gospel. So, so put on the gospel, I think, is, is part of what he's saying. As Paul has made clear earlier in this letter, the revelation of the plan of God in Christ Jesus is the word of truth. So Paul says that you guys heard the word of truth when you, when you heard the message and believed. And so it, the, the, this truth certainly references the gospel. It's the truth that was once hidden but now has been revealed. So standing firm in the gospel message is what Paul's to, to put on the truth, to, to put on the belt of truth. Stand firm in the gospel message, the good news of Christ crucified and buried and raised 
in order to justify sinful men and women. So we stand against evil by equipping ourselves with the truth. And in this case, with the gospel. And so we stand firm by holding fast to the gospel message. And as the first weapon that's mentioned, we wouldn't be out of line to assume that this is a primary target for Satan and the forces of evil. I mean, just think about it. Satan hates the gospel. He despises the good news. Satan and evil forces hate the truths of the gospel. Satan can't stand that in the gospel, God justifies ungodly people. Satan hates that. Satan would have every Christian to believe that he or she was too bad, too evil, too far gone, outsend God's grace. That's what Satan would want. And many of you are tempted to believe that. I'm tempted to believe that. But the gospel, the truth is that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. Staying firm in the truth is recognizing I'm, I'm free. I'm guiltless. I'm innocent. We stand firm by remembering, by reminding ourselves, by rejoicing in the gospel of Christ. That's how we fight Satan. The, the truth combats the lies that Satan would have us believe. This is the gospel, that God justifies ungodly men and women. If, you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you just need to know there are two sides to this battle, and only two sides. You're either for God or against God. That's the only two sides. And you're not for God by just doing good things, by being a humanitarian, by, by serving the poor. That's not how you're for God. You're for God by repenting of sins and putting your faith in Jesus, and that's the only way that you're on God's side. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not nice enough. But Jesus came because you're none of those things. And so the gospel of Christ says that though you are not worthy, though you don't deserve his, his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation, you don't deserve it, though you don't deserve it, he freely gives it to those who believe in Jesus. And so some of you here, you just need to hear me say that forgiveness of your sins is offered through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And people mock it, and people belittle it, and people ignore it, but the reality remains there are two sides to this battle, and you're on one side or the other. And so I would, I would urge you to turn from your sins, to put your faith in Jesus. That's why we just had the Lord's Supper. Those who have put their faith in Jesus, those who are united to him, have God on their side and are guaranteed victory. And so the truth, put it on the truth, it, it references the gospel, but there's another aspect of truth here that I think Paul would also want us to get, which is the outworking of the gospel in the world, specifically among Christians. And so if you remember back in, I think it was chapter 3, Paul says that, indeed, if you've heard the truth that is in Jesus, which involves putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And so the truth involves speaking the truth in love. And so, so putting on about the truth involves ethical or moral actions, of, of pursuing righteousness, of, of telling the truth, of, of working towards unity with one another. And so it in, in, involves pursuing righteousness and holiness, the very things that Christ himself pursued. And so girding our loins with truth means that we don't give Satan a foothold. We, we resist him by holding fast to the gospel and aiming to be Christ-like in all our relationships. Now, that's how we, we prevent and resist Satan from getting a foothold. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the, the Christian who is regularly rejoicing in the salvation that Christ has accomplished for him or her and who is constantly selflessly loving and serving others, that person 
is not going to easily fall prey to any wiles of Satan. So if you're rejoicing in the truth, in the gospel of your salvation, and you're not tired of it, and you're not past it and thinking, oh, that's old news, if you're rejoicing in that, and then you're pursuing to live out the truth in your life, if that's what you're doing, Satan is going to be resisted. No one that's doing those things falls into gross sin. It's a, it's a pattern. And these are ways that Paul says, stand firm. And, and the truth is the primary way, or one of the primary ways that we stand against Satan. Notice he continues there, and also in verse 14, stand firm therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and second, he mentions, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the second piece of armor he mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. Again, Paul's reference here is from Isaiah 57, I think it's verse 11, but the passage in Isaiah 57 refers to God himself coming with a breastplate of righteousness, and, and as he comes, this breastplate is, is there because he's going to deliver his people and he's going to do so by judging his enemies. And so his breastplate of righteousness is indicative of the justice that he's going to accomplish or establish. But Paul's point here is not that the Christian needs to have this breastplate of righteousness to judge. That's not his point. Paul's point here is that the Christian has as his or her breastplate as a means of protection against the evil one a righteousness that comes from God himself. Much like the truth, the the breastplate of righteousness comes from God himself. This reference to righteousness as a weapon against Satan is also directly tied to the gospel. It's tied to the message of the truth. So whereas in in Isaiah 57, the Israelites needed God himself to come to their defense as the righteous one. They were unrighteous. They needed God to come as, as, as the one with the breastplate of righteousness. Christians... Those who've been justified by God have been declared righteous. And so in Christ, the Christian fights as one who has been declared righteous. And so we have the breastplate of righteousness because we have been declared so in Christ. In Christ, the Christian fights as one who has been declared righteous. And since it is God himself who has declared us righteous, there is nothing that anyone or anything can do to alter that verdict. When God declares something as such, it is such. It cannot be otherwise. And this is really significant. Because in our war against Satan and against evil forces, there's nothing that Satan can do or say. There's nothing that Satan can do or say. There's no lie that he can make you believe that can change your righteous standing before God in Christ. The breastplate of righteousness guards against anything that anyone would say to say, you're not righteous. One commentator explains it this way, to every insinuation that you are so vile, so guilty, worthless, and perverse, so beset with sin and under such wrath that God will repulse you, these insinuations oppose the free and perfect righteousness of your Redeemer, so that the dart thrown at you only rings against such a breastplate and falls blunted to the earth. So you have the righteousness of God that has been credited to us is a guard, is an armor, a defense against evil. When Satan attacks the Christian, the righteousness of God, the declared righteousness of God that is credited to a Christian on behalf of Christ alone, the justification that comes by faith alone is a great source of protection. There's, a, there's this great song, Kevin and I were talking about this morning. It's a, it's a great song that's called Embracing Accusation. 
And so in this song, there's this, this inner dialogue where, where the, the, the artist, the singer, the, the person who's, who's talking in the song is wrestling with condemnation. And, and so I just want to read a few of the lyrics because, I mean, it's so powerful. He says, quote, the song, the devil is preaching the song of the redeemed. Here's the song of redeemed that the devil's preaching to him. That I am cursed and gone astray, that I cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I'm cursed and gone astray. So, so, so maybe this happens to you in inner dialogue. You're cursed. You're a failure. You can't live up. You're a miserable Christian. How can you fall into that sin again? How can you get so angry at, at that? So maybe that, that happens in your inner dialogue. So the devil is preaching the gospel saying, you're cursed, you're not worthy. But, but listen to how this song continues, this, this ends. <clears throat> he says, singing the first verse so conveniently over me. That's the first verse. You're cursed. That's the first verse. And that is the gospel. But he's forgotten the refrain Jesus saves. What good news. And so, so, so the, whole, the whole point of the song is we embrace accusation because it shows us we're not worthy. We are guilty. We are rightly declared as unfit, unrighteous. But the gospel says that in Jesus, I am saved and declared righteous. So that the, the verdict that Satan in my sin declares is not true because Jesus saves it's a powerful source of, of armor. It's a powerful way to defend the lies of Satan. When, when he says you're not worthy, you say, yes, you're right, but you don't know my Jesus. So we fight with the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Paul continues, look there in verse 15. Continues, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So next, Paul mentions shoes for our feet that are described as, as ready, this readiness or these ready feet. And again, this imagery taken from Isaiah 57, you've probably heard this before because Paul quotes this passage also in uh, Romans 11, but the messenger in Isaiah 57, the messenger who brings the good news, the, the, the message of peace, has beautiful feet in Isaiah 57. How, how beautiful are the feet of those who declare the message of the Lord? And the feet are beautiful because of what they enable the messenger to do in travel, the, the, the feet enable the, the messenger to, to proclaim the, the good news all over. And so, so that's the reference here. But, but notice, and, and, and I miss this, but notice here, Paul doesn't focus on the proclamation of the message. That's not his point. Paul's focus here is on readiness. A readiness that Paul says comes from the gospel of peace. Again, the emphasis isn't on the shoes, it's on the readiness that is produced by the gospel of peace. Do you see that? As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, normally we read this and we say, well, we need to be ready to share the gospel, which that's certainly true, right? Don't hear me say that's not true, but, but I don't think that's Paul's point here. Paul urges Christians to put on readiness. Don't, he doesn't say put on the gospel and, and go share it. He says put on readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So if you have the NIV, your translation reads, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I think that's the idea here. The readiness comes from the gospel of peace. Or if you have the, the, new, the NASB, the New American Standard, it says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, there's a, there's, you're prepared by the gospel of peace to, have, to be ready. You're prepared. 
And so Paul's point seems to be that this gospel of peace, as those who've believed the gospel of peace, those who have peace with God, Christians are to put on readiness. That's, that's the call, to put on readiness. In other words, Paul is saying Christians stand firm against Satan by being ready. I think that's his point, being always alert, never letting your guard down, always aware of an enemy that could strike at any moment. And that's the point. Put on readiness, he says. I mean, this is the context of, of, of war, wartime mentality. Be ready. The snap of a twig, you're, you're alert. What is that? I think that's his point. And I think this readiness comes from the fact that the gospel is a gospel of peace, and it is a gospel of peace that pronounces peace between a sinful man or woman and a righteous God. And so peace comes between God and people through this gospel, which means by the very nature of the war that's going on, being at peace with God means necessarily being at enmity with Satan. You see, so the gospel of peace has brought me near to God, which means I have a guaranteed enemy, which is Satan. And so becoming a Christian means you automatically assume a lifelong enemy in Satan and his forces of evil. And so Paul says, put on readiness that comes from the gospel of peace because in the gospel you have peace with God, which means you don't have peace with Satan. I think that's what Paul means here. I mean, for example, you and I could be great friends. We could be cordial. We, we could even be pretty close friends, hang out, spend weekends together, have you over for dinner. But as soon as I find out you're a Dallas Cowboys fan or a Virginia Tech fan, right, all bets are off, right? All bets are off. You and I are no longer at peace, <laughs> at least when it comes to sports, right? The point being, I know that's a silly example, but the point being if, if, you're, if I'm at peace with God, all bets are off when it comes to peace with Satan. And that's the point. Satan is no longer happy to be your ally. If you're, if you're an ally with God, you're not an ally with Satan, and he's your enemy. So, so Paul says, be ready. Ready. Put on readiness. Notice next, verse 16. Paul continues, in all circumstances... Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. As Paul continues, he offers a bit more explanation regarding this shield of faith. Right? So, so this is a more descript, right? the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take it up. And the shield of faith is with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And so there, there's clearly an implied importance here. Standing firm requires taking up the shield of faith. So Paul says, in all circumstances, do this. And with this, the Christian can extinguish all flaming darts. And so Christians, it should be noted, are in the midst of spiritual warfare. And in the midst of spiritual warfare, Christians can and will be faced with a litany of flaming darts, fiery darts from Satan. That, that, that's, that's par for the course in this battle. And so Paul says you're, you're going to be attacked by flaming darts. And these darts, I, I think it's, it's clear, take various forms. But all of them seek for the same goal. They, they seek to do us harm. They seek to injure, disable, eliminate us from the battle, put us on the stretcher. That, that's, that's the intention of every single one of these flaming darts. I think these darts could include things like, like any and every kind of temptation to ungodly behavior. So, so, so any tem anything that tempts you to violate the, the will of God, I think that's, that's a fiery dart that Satan would, would have you do, or doubt, or despair, Things internal, when you're wrestling with your faith. I think, I think these can be fiery darts. God's not trustworthy. Your sins aren't forgiven. You really think someone loves you? Right? These, are, these are all fiery darts that Paul says take up the shield of faith, but it also could be outward. So think about persecution 
or false teaching. These are things that Satan can use and does use to attack the Christian. And I mean, there could be a whole, whole, whole longer list of things. We should, we should recognize that Satan is not a passive enemy. He's not passive. He's not taking a nap, right? He's on the prowl. He's attacking regularly. And so Paul says, take up the shield of faith which is able to extinguish all the attacks from the evil one. Paul's call to take up the shield of faith is simply a call to trust, trust God, trust his power. Right? This is the essence of faith, trusting in God. And so, so believing his word to take the shield of faith is to appropriate the promises of God on our behalf. So, so no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. You say there is? No, that's not true. The shield of faith says, no, that dart's not getting here because I know what's true. We take up the shield of faith confident that God will protect us in the midst of battle. We're strong with his might. We fight with his armor. The forces of evil, as we said last week, are incredibly powerful. And left to our own devices, we would certainly fail. But these flaming arrows cannot harm those whose trust and confidence are in the Lord and in his mighty power. So those who, who trust in the Lord, those whose faith are in him, are able to resist and overcome these satanic attacks. And so we, we take up the shield of faith, trusting in God as, as those in relationship with him. We trust him, we believe him. And then notice finally verse 17. Paul closes with, with two more pieces, two final pieces of armor. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this helmet of salvation, this fifth piece of armor that Paul mentions, and, and like most of the other four, this helmet of salvation is explicitly mentioned in Isaiah 59, 17. And there in Isaiah 59, the Lord himself puts on the helmet of salvation and comes to the defense of his people. So he puts on the, puts on the helmet so that he then goes and defends his people. But here, like before, in the Ephesians context, things are a bit different. Not only is the Lord fighting for the Ephesians, they themselves are able to utilize the divine resources or that they may fight. So, so the call here for Paul that he's calling Christians to, it doesn't say, hey, you just wait for the Lord. Just So you remember the Israelites where Moses said, hey, you guys don't do anything, just sit back and watch what the Lord does. Right? That would be awesome if that was how we fought Satan and his enemies, but that's not the case. Right? We, we depend on the Lord, we fight in his strength, but we do stuff. We wage war, we're not passive. And so Paul is, is saying, put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. You have been given things to engage the enemy yourself. And as I said last week, we do so dependently, but we still wage war. And Paul calls the Christians to put on the helmet of salvation, which means not so much a future salvation, but, but to fight in light of the salvation that's already been accomplished. So taking the helmet of salvation means that we fight recognizing that salvation has already been accomplished Right? It is finished is what Jesus cried. And so God's salvation that has already been accomplished, right? it has already been accomplished. Jesus has been crucified, buried, raised. It has been accomplished. And so that salvation that Christ has worked in, that God has worked in Christ Jesus is the ultimate assurance of, perfect, of protection. God is for us. Jesus has died for us and has purchased us now and forever. Therefore, we fight confidently. We wage war against an enemy whose days are numbered. The deadly blow has already been struck. We fight an enemy whose time is short, and that reality enables us to stand firm. We take up this helmet of salvation, recognize that God has accomplished salvation for us. 
But not only does Paul mention the helmet of salvation, then he lists the sword of the Spirit, which is, he says, the Word of God. And so with this final piece of weaponry, Paul shifts from defensive or protective armor to another offensive weapon, a sword. And this sword, Paul says, is the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Meaning the message, the Word of God, is empowered by the Spirit of God. And so it's the sword of the Spirit. Do you see? He's saying, it's the Word of God, by the way. So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So the Spirit uses the Word. So the Spirit is the one who empowers the Word, which, which is the sword, Paul says. And so Paul seems to be imploring the Christians to arm themselves with Scripture in order to fight the attacks of Satan, to, to know the Word of God. The Word of God is an offensive weapon to be used in spiritual warfare. So take up the sword of the Spirit, Paul says. One commentator notes, a thorough knowledge of Scripture accompanied by careful consideration of its relevance for, for every situation is crucial for standing against the temptations that come from the evil one. And so you ought to know the Scriptures. As a Christian, you ought to know the Scriptures. You ought to know. And you know by spending time in the Word. You ought to take up the sword of the Spirit. I mean, I'm afraid that, that as, as vastly available as the Bible is to us, I'm afraid we read it less than, than centuries ago when, when there was maybe one family copy. I'm amazed at the, the amount of Christians that don't read their Bible. I'm amazed at the days that I, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, don't read the Bible can't be expected to fight, to take up the sword of the Spirit if we're not reading the Word of God, knowing Scripture, knowing the truth, knowing promises of God. And this is all, this is all a result of, of we have been brought near to God. We have relationship with Him, and, and so we ought to hear from Him through His Word. But there's also a sense in which Paul here, in light of the larger battle that's raging, sees the sharing and the spread of the gospel, not just the Word of God generally, but specifically the good news of the gospel, the spread of this gospel as a, a, a means of waging war. And so if you think about that, the, the spreading of the gospel is the most aggressive action that we can take against the evil one. And so, so as the gospel spreads, as an individual, as someone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus and is saved, right, every time that happens, right, heaven rejoices, right, and, and hell and Satan uh, is despairing. And because every time a sinner is converted, that's a, that, that's a sign to Satan that his time is, is short, that his power is not as great as he thinks. He cannot prevent people from becoming Christians because God's Spirit can do that as the gospel goes forward. The Spirit is the one who gives power. Satan cannot prevent that. And so Paul says to, 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 do, to do this, right, the, the sword of the Spirit, to fight with the sword of the Spirit. And so he moves away from the specific armor. So the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. He then transitions, and this last section is, is much shorter, don't fret, but he then transitions in verse 18 through 20 to, to not so much another weapon in the armor, but to an additional strategy. So he turns to prayer. I have this listed out as a, as a separate category because prayer is, I think, is, is too important to just be put in this list of armor. Because I think this is a whole different strategy, a fundamental and continuous activity that's crucial to deploying all the armor and weapons that he's just commanded. 
So I think prayer is to be used in, in, in light, and as prayer is used, it enables us to, to function and use the other weapons that were mentioned. And so look there, verse 18. Verse 18, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so having just spent so much time describing the whole armor of God and having called the Ephesian Christians to stand firm, it wouldn't make sense for Paul all of a sudden to switch topics and begin a seemingly random discussion of prayer. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, Paul's shift to prayer is in keeping with his call to spiritual warfare. Paul understands prayer as an essential activity for waging war against evil. I mean, notice the comprehensive nature of this call to prayer. How many times did, did the word all occur there in verse 18? Notice, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so this is a comprehensive call at all times. So, so a call to prayer is not just another piece of armor. It's a comprehensive strategy. It's, it's an air war, if you will, to complement the ground war of the shields and the helmets and swords. And so so we, we wage air war by praying. Simply put, prayer is one of, if not the primary way that Christians fight the devil and his schemes. We pray. We pray. A failure to pray concerning these things is a failure to use all that God's provided us with. I mean, I just, just, just ask yourself, do you, do you think about prayer as an offensive weapon against Satan and his schemes? So, so there's, a, there's a, a, a popular movie called The War Room. And that was a helpful movie because it said this is an offensive weapon that we use. We wage war with prayer. I think sometimes we just think we, we use it passively. Oh, help me. Right? We wage war by praying, I think is how Paul understands prayer to work in verse 18. It's an offensive weapon. Pray at all times with all prayer and supplications. And Paul knows it won't become easy, so he says with all perseverance. Stick with it. Don't be discouraged. If you don't, if you don't see your prayers being answered, don't, don't lose heart. Keep waging war. There, there's hope. Paul knows that prayer isn't something we naturally turn to or something we're naturally inclined towards. But because the stakes are so high and because the power is so short, Paul says, pray. Wage war against Satan and his evil forces by praying at all times with all supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. Pray. Just pray. There's a quote by a man named S.D. Gordon who says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Maybe you've heard that. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Pray, Paul says. Wage war by praying. This holds true for spiritual warfare. We can do all we want to stand firm, but if we're not praying, if we're not persevering in prayer, we're not doing all that we can. Christians are to pray continually because our struggle with the powers of darkness is never ending. You can stop praying when Satan stops attacking. And that's never going to happen until Jesus comes back. So let, let, let's pray that it happens today. I'd love to stop praying today if that means that Jesus has come back and Satan's defeated and it's over. I'm, I, I'm praying for that. But until that day comes, Satan is waging war against us and we're called to pray. And then briefly, Paul continues in verse 19, giving some more specifics. That not, not only does he want to pray for all the saints, verse 19 he says, pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul here in closing recognizes that even as the great apostle, the great missionary, the church planter, 
right? the, the, the church celebrity, that he is not beyond the need for others to pray for him. He's dependent on their prayers for him. He says, pray for me. As you're praying for all the saints, don't forget measly little Paul. I need your prayers. Pray for me. And he specifically wants him to pray that he might openly and boldly proclaim the gospel. He says, pray for me that I I may share the gospel. He requests intercession for himself that he might effectively use the spiritual weapon of the sword of the spirit. That is the gospel. He says, pray that, that I might use the sword that I'm telling you to use. I need you to pray for me. If you remember earlier in, in the book of, or in this letter, he's he's told them what he prays for them. Now he's asking them, pray for me. I need your prayer too. And it's especially necessary because, as Paul notes, he's an ambassador, an ambassador, so a, a spokesperson of Christ, minister of the gospel, but he's an ambassador in chains. So you don't think of an ambassador as someone who's in jail, but that's exactly what Paul says he is. He's been jailed, imprisoned because of his boldness in declaring the gospel. So he asked them. Pray that I might not be discouraged. Pray that I don't lose my boldness because as the longer I sit here in jail, the more, the, the more I'm discouraged, the more I think, ah, it's not really worth it. So Paul says, pray for me that I, might, that I might be bold. I might open my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel. So Paul assumes that the Ephesians, though far away from him, were partners with him, fellow soldiers with him, waging war on his behalf through prayer. Are you, are you fellow soldiers with any, with any workers that, that aren't near to you? Missionaries, friends in ministry? Like you can wage war on their behalf. You can be partners with them through prayer. That's what Paul asked the Ephesians to do. And so Paul's success as an apostle, as someone who was commissioned to preach the gospel to Gentiles, was dependent on others praying for him. I think that's instructive for us. And the point being from these last verses, that dependence on God expressed through prayer is necessary. So so Paul's saying, I'm dependent on your prayers so that I might continue my ministry. And so if Christians are to engage successfully in their warfare with the powers of darkness, they must depend on God. We must wage war in his strength, dependent on his might, which is a fitting way for Paul to end this passage and really this whole section in the letter of Ephesians. The call for us as Christians is, is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so as Christians, the only real hope that we have against Satan and his schemes is that God is on our side. We have his gospel, his promises, his armor, all of which enable us to stand strong as his people. So brother, sister, Christian, let us stand strong in the strength of his might. Let's pray as we close.